hey, there are episodes of Line in the Land in English and in Spanish. This is the English version. Para escuchar en español, vuelve al feed para encontrar la versión con el título La Línea. Support for this podcast comes from the Catena Foundation, making ambitious public radio journalism projects under TPR's Border and Immigration News Desk possible. It was January 12, 2010, a month before Jansoni Eugene's 20th birthday. He was at his girlfriend's house when suddenly el ruido. they heard a rumble around them. A major earthquake hit the city. This morning, we're bringing you updates on the earthquake that struck Haiti yesterday. It was a magnitude 7 quake, and it was centered just a few miles from Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince. We're told that houses went sliding down hillsides in a city where many buildings are unsafe even in normal times. One of the worst natural disasters in modern history. Right now in Haiti, roads are impassable. The main port is badly damaged. Communications are just beginning to come online and aftershocks continue. Eugene avoids my eyes as he recounts what happened to him that day. These are difficult memories. He struggles to open up at first. His girlfriend's house survived the quake, so they were spared injury. But his own home wasn't so lucky. When I got there, my house was completely destroyed, he says. Everyone inside died under the rubble. His mom and brother weren't at home and survived. Still, for Eugene, the loss was unmanageable. He remembers the days that followed. Neighbors pulled corpses out from the rubble. He was weak with grief. His cousin was among the hundreds of thousands dead. One and a half million were displaced, like Eugene. They had to sleep somewhere. They brought tents, sheets, anything they could find to build shelter on some open land. Here's a PBS NewsHour report describing how Haitians who had lost their homes built a, quote, constellation of teeming cities within a city. Settlements have no running water, no garbage collection, few systems for collecting human waste. The Haitian government is scrambled to put together a plan to house hundreds of thousands of people before the spring rains begin, even as new makeshift camps spring up on every empty patch of ground. In the wake of the disaster, while thousands moved into these tent cities, some returned to homes in the countryside, others went overseas. In fact, over the next decade, thousands were forced to leave the country altogether. Many ended up in Brazil. 
because Brazil was getting ready to build for the Olympics, for the World Cup. They needed manual labor. They needed uh, uh, workers. This is Gerling Joseph, again, an advocate who works with Haitian immigrants along the U.S.-Mexico border. We heard from her in episode one. So as part of that program, uh, people went to Brazil and they were part of the group that went there. That's right. Those soccer stadiums teeming with international fans during the 2014 World Cup, Haitians helped build some of those. Some Haitians ventured even further to the skinny, mountainous country at the far southwest edge of the continent, Chile. And some went to both countries, one after the other. It took Aogene several years to get to Chile. Those final years in Haiti were tough. He lived two years in a tent city. Then his mom was killed in an attempted robbery. I didn't know what to do, he says, because it was her, my mom who helped me with everything. It was time for Eugene to leave Port-au-Prince. A cousin who had been living in Chile since 2012 did him a solid. He convinced Eugene to join him abroad. He bought his plane ticket and promised to let him crash with him. Eugene agreed. He still remembers the cold winter day in 2015 when he got off the plane in Santiago, Chile. The cold told me, welcome. It hit me in the stomach, he says. That's when I realized I'm not in my country anymore. Chile became home for Eugene and many other Haitian migrants. But a sudden rise in immigration to Chile from Haiti and elsewhere eventually led open doors to close. By 2018, Chile had become a more hostile place to outsiders. Which eventually sparked thousands of Haitians to pack up their lives in Chile and head north to the Texas border with Mexico continuing their odyssey in pursuit of a better life. Texas Public Radio and the Houston Chronicle spent months reporting on this story. We went to the forest of Colombia, Mexican migrant shelters. We spoke with Haitians across the Americas, in person, through WhatsApp and video calls with folks in Santiago, Chile, in Monterrey, Mexico. The people who can best tell this story. Who can help us understand why so many people took this perilous journey. And how immigration policies in the Americas played such a pivotal and, in some cases, devastating role in their lives. I'm Joy Palacios with Texas Public Radio. And I'm Elizabeth Trobal with the Houston Chronicle. This is episode two of Line in the Land. When Jansoni Eugene left Haiti and got off that plane in Santiago, Chile, it was a major life change. Besides the chilly mountain air, he had to adjust to a new language, a new culture. But eventually, he was able to get on his feet. Because Chile had a strong economy with lots of jobs for immigrants like him. During the 90s and early 2000s, Chile started doing very well. And, and, and also, Chile, as you might know, is the experiment of neoliberalism. 
That's Chilean immigration expert Marcia Vera Espinosa from Queen Margaret University in Edinburgh. So the country really is, you know, portraying themselves as a as a very good um, model in the South American context. Chile also didn't require a special visa from Haitians to get there like other countries. They could arrive as tourists and switch their visa when they found a job. Word started to spread, Chile became an immigration destination. And at first, local businesses welcomed the influx. People from, from like the business uh, organizations, they were like, yeah, Chile is growing so much that we need migration and we need labor, you know, because we are a small country, so we, we really need labor. But Chile wasn't really prepared for an influx of foreigners, partly because of the country's really unique geography. Here's a YouTube travel guide. As the longest, thinnest country in the world, Chile stretches all the way from the borders with Bolivia and Peru in the north, 4,500 kilometers to Tierra del Fuego in the south. Chile has long been isolated by that geography, wedged between the Andes Mountains and the Pacific Ocean. Some Chileans even say Chile is an island. An economically sound country that is fast becoming a first world nation, Chile has a huge amount to offer the modern traveler. Around 15 years ago, Carl Abulom was himself intrigued by the country. He moved to Chile from Haiti to study. Over a shaky video call from rural Chile, he says when he first arrived, he was all the rage back in university. As one of the few Black people in Santiago, he remembers feeling kind of like a celebrity. Strangers would literally stop and ask to take a photo with him. It was weird sometimes, but he felt like it all came from a good place. He even fell in love with a Chilean. But partly because of its unique geography and the legacy of colonization on the continent, some Chileans can be closed off, classist and racist. Many locals pride themselves in looking light-skinned and European. Peruvian immigrants and indigenous Mapuche people have long spoken out against the stigma that comes with being dark-skinned or indigenous there. So when planes started bringing more and more Haitians every week, like the one that brought Aogene, it was, at the very least, unsettling to many Chileans. From 2015 through 2017, more than 170,000 Haitians arrived in Chile, along with more than 300,000 Venezuelans, tripling the immigrant population. The demographics of Chile were changing in real time. A large Afro-Chilean community emerged and drew attention. Surbano, de 24 años, lo trajo a Chile en diciembre del 2016. En marzo del año pasado entró al colegio y ahora ya cursa séptimo básico. This local TV news story is celebrating a young Haitian Chilean boy showing off his cueca skills, Chile's national dance. Some Chileans embraced the newcomers. In the YouTube comments under this video, many loved the cultural crossover. Others weren't too happy about it. Chileans were witnessing a lot of rapid change in a short amount of time. In fact, other comments on that fluffy news story show the tension that was growing. Some troll the news program, asking, why don't you just replace all the anchors with Haitians if you like them so much? Others say, 
It's a shame to see a Haitian dancing Chile's national dance. A few comments even got violent. This footage from September 2021 was captured by national TV station Tele 13. It's an anti-immigrant protest in northern Chile. Chileans are screaming, Chile first, and immigrants, get out. The angry mob went to a plaza where Venezuelan migrants had been living. The Chileans grab the Venezuelans' tents, strollers, and chairs and throw them in a pile and then set them on fire. In another shot, a group of Chileans corner some migrants in a shop. Children are crying as protesters scream at them. Chileans became more hostile towards immigrants, and so did the country's policies. When Haitian migration reaches its peak in 2017, Chile elects a new president. Right-wing candidate Sebastián Piñera vows to crack down on immigration. He says he's proposing a law to open doors to law-abiding working immigrants who can contribute to society and closing doors to people bringing in crime. Even though Chile's Center for Investigative Journalism, CIPER, found no evidence that immigration had increased crime in Chile, Piñera did crack down on Haitian and Venezuelan immigration. He made it hard for Haitians to fly into Chile. And for Haitians already in the country, he made it more difficult to get new visas to stay legally. Piñera's policies clouded futures for many Haitians, like Domingue Paul. More on that when we come back. This podcast made possible by the Katana Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. We're back. At a makeshift migrant camp in Acuna, Mexico, across the border from Del Rio, Texas, I'm with Domingue Paul. While we talk, one of his kids walks up with a small toy car. Super? Super cuauto. Super, super, super. Originally from Haiti, he moved to Chile in 2018. He says even though his kiddos are Chilean citizens and he had a job in Santiago, it was tough to get his and his wife's immigration paperwork figured out. Bueno, yo elige abandonar Chile por el tema de documento. He explains the painstaking process of getting the required criminal background checks sent from Haiti to Chile, paying a friend to pick up the paperwork, a five-month wait for international delivery, 
all worth it to get his immigration status in good standing. Then, when he showed his paperwork to immigration officials before the deadline, they told him the paperwork was no good and to try again. So he gave up. On top of the bureaucratic nightmare, he also says he faced discriminatory treatment, like when a cashier randomly claimed his 10,000 peso bill was fake and just took it from him. I thought something was going to happen to me, like what happened with George Floyd in the U.S., he says. Another time, he was stopped by Chilean police for being out in public during the pandemic. I saw Chileans walk by, but the police, they never stopped them, he says. This is why it doesn't hurt me to leave Chile. Let's circle back to Eugene. After losing his house in the earthquake and his mother in a robbery, his luck turned around after he moved to Chile. He worked decent jobs, got married, and eventually started his own business, a little shop where he sold snacks and cigarettes in a Santiago neighborhood called Quilicura, where a lot of Haitians live. Yo monté un negocio en Chile que no era un negocio grande. It wasn't a large business, he says. But with it, I started to make a living. But then, one day, he gets to the shop. Someone stole his inventory. He goes to the Chilean police to file a report. They say they won't help him because of a paperwork issue with his business. No, no puedo, no puede, no puede poner la denuncia porque no tengo este papel. He and his wife decide to dip into their savings to restock the shelves. But the attacks continue. One day, six guys show up to a shop. Uno se saco una arma, uno de ellos. Saco una arma. Digo que One of them pulls out a gun and says, give me the money. He pretends to reach for cash, but instead hides behind a wall. They shoot at him, but miss. He collapses in shock as the group flees the scene. He calls his wife. This was it. His business was not something worth losing his life over, like what happened to his mom. He closed his business in July 2021. They sold their car, their belongings, and decided they would start over, again, in the country he'd heard about since he was a kid, the United States. The U.S. seemed like a viable option to Aogin and a growing number of Haitians in Chile and Brazil. It had a strong economy, a large Haitian diaspora, 
And when Joe Biden took office, many believed that border officials would be friendlier to migrants, especially compared to former President Donald Trump. Haitians got word that the U.S. would let them in at the border. And that was largely true when they were coming in smaller numbers. These reports spread quickly over WhatsApp and social media. Movement was also encouraged by fixers and gangs that profit off migrants to make the trip. It didn't help that they didn't really understand U.S. border policies. Not a lot of people do. So many Haitians in South and Central America took a huge gamble. They made the long journey by land across the Americas through the infamous Darien Gap that connects South America to Central America. By 2021, thousands were making this trek. In our next episode, we'll bring you along that journey through South and Central America, a trip so terrible, Eugene says, if he had known it was going to be so dangerous, he never would have gone. Si sabía que la, la ruta era así, no me arriesgaba. Es muy peligroso. That's in the next episode of Line in the Land. Line in the Land is reported and produced by Elizabeth Troval, Sofia Sanchez, Stephanie Corpi, and Joey Palacios. Our editor is Elisa Barba. Cultural competency assessment by Miriam Chaussey. Sound design and music by Jacob Rosati. Audio mixing by Bennett Smith. Special thanks to Dan Katz, Lily Thomas, and Maria Reeve. Line in the Land is a production of Texas Public Radio in collaboration with the Houston Chronicle.